1 Corinthians 9, if you turn there with me. First Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, I think we would probably all agree that most people need to be taught how to manage their resources. Uh, for example, which of you popped out of the womb as a wise and excellent manager of money? Well, I doubt any of you actually popped out of the womb, but uh, hopefully you're a good manager of money at this point. But if someone were to have given you $100 as, say, a four-year-old child, and then gave you the freedom to do with that $100, whatever it is that you wanted to do with it, and maybe even offered to drive you to the store, what would you have done with that $100? You may have squandered all of it at the dollar store in a single hour. That's probably what I would have done. But over time, you learn lessons about money, right? You learned lessons from your parents and others. You perhaps learned something, a thing or two from your school, uh, maybe an economics teacher, maybe as an adult you learn some things about money from a financial planner, or maybe what you know you learn from the school of hard knocks. Money is a precious and powerful commodity, and as we think about it, we know that there's a time to save it, and there would also be a time to spend it, a time to invest it, a time to give it, and other times just to cut your losses and move on. It's important to learn how to manage your financial resources But did you know that you have another very, very precious and powerful resource, one that you probably haven't thought of really as a resource? Uh, It's your Christian liberties, your Christian rights, liberties, and freedoms. And much like with money, there's a time to use them. There's a time to invest them. There's also a time to set them aside and save them for later. And there's a time to give them up completely. And as with money, people need to be taught how to manage their their Christian liberties. They need to be taught how to manage uh, that resource well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, some of the Corinthians insisted on their right, freedom, or liberty. Uh, You may recall they insisted on that liberty to eat uh, meat or food that had been offered to idols and to do that in an idol's temple. And Paul challenged them that even if they do have that right, they should take care not to damage their brother spiritually through the exercise of that right. Paul reminds him, you need to think about your brother here. There's a lot at stake. And now in chapter 9, Paul offers himself as an example of what it looks like to manage your Christian liberties well. He actually writes chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians to accomplish a few different things. And I think you'll see this as we start to work through this chapter. He writes to give the Corinthians an example of how to manage their biblical rights. He also writes to defend his apostleship. It seems that it was under attack. And then he would write as well, and this will probably be what seems like the main focus of his text. He writes to correct the Corinthians for their failure uh, to support him financially, materially. Apparently the Corinthians had not stepped up to the plate and volunteered to support him as he advanced the gospel. Uh, Through all that's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul teaches that you must let the gospel inform your thinking about rights. And so I'm going to go ahead and read through uh, half of chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I'll read down through verse 14 and would ask you to follow along. Paul starts with this question. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? 
Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Uh, Paul has two lessons that he wants to teach us, more or less from his example. Uh, and the first lesson that he puts before us is that the gospel makes you free to exercise your rights. The gospel makes you free to exercise your rights. Paul is going to claim that he is, if I could word it this way, the legitimate heir to three rights in particular. However, before he can do that, he needs to establish uh, that he is uh, legitimately entitled to those rights. Uh, maybe a helpful way to think of it is what might happen when some member, perhaps, of royalty dies and he leaves his estate to his children. And someone might step out of the woodwork and, and make the claim that they are one of that uh, deceased person's relatives or children as well. And in order to pr prove that that's not just some crazy claim, uh, that relative actually offers his DNA as indisputable evidence. I, I am the son of that man. That's what Paul is doing here, you might say. He's offering his DNA to establish that he is the legitimate heir to certain rights. What qualifies Paul to lay claim to these rights? Well, he, he's going to assert two things. He's going to say, number one, I'm free. And number two, I'm an apostle. Therefore, three rights belong to him. The right to eat and to drink, the right to marry, and the right to ministry compensation. Look at verses one and two as he establishes his legitimacy to these rights. He, and what he does in this text again and again, he's just asking question after question after question. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, you, are not you my workmanship if the, in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Just like the Corinthians, Paul says, just like you, I'm free. I'm free in Christ to exercise certain liberties. And further, he makes the claim he's an apostle. Remember, he's defending this. Apparently, it was under attack. On the road to Damascus, Paul saw the resurrected Christ and he was converted there. And as he saw the resurrected Christ, what did Jesus do? He called him and he then commissioned him to the ministry of the gospel. And, and Paul makes clear whether others considered Paul to be an apostle or not, the Corinthians knew that he was because they were living proof of it. 
They were like a seal, Paul says, a seal that would authenticate something. They were like a seal that authenticated Paul's apostleship. He had planted, he had planted their church. Probably many of these people had come to faith, saving faith under Paul's ministry. He's making the point that, that he's no charlatan or peddler of the gospel or anything like that. So what rights belong to this man? Well, he's going to give us three examples. There would no doubt be more, but he puts three on the table in this text. Example number one of a right that Paul has is the right to eat and drink. Look at verses three and four. Paul says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and to drink? Uh, Prior to his conversion, you may recall that Paul was a devout Jew, which meant that if Paul was going to eat something, it needed to be kosher, right? It needed to comply with all the Jewish dietary expectations and restrictions and the whole works. But the gospel had liberated and freed Paul from all that. If he wanted to have a pork chop and if he wanted to have a pound of bacon for breakfast, Paul could do that. He could have a pork chop. He could have his bacon. If he wanted to go to the marketplace and and buy food that had been offered to an idol, he could go to the marketplace and he could buy his food and he doesn't need to worry about if it was offered to an idol or not. He can fill his whole grocery cart with it. He had the right to eat and to drink. These were his Christian liberties. That's his first example. His second example, example number two, is the right to marry. Look at verse 5. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? If Paul wanted to get married, Paul says, I'm free in the Lord to do that. I have that liberty. I can do that. I can marry a Christian woman. Apostleship and ministry didn't necessitate that he needed to be single for the sake of the mission. The other apostles, the brothers of Jesus and Peter, they all took wives. Paul had the liberty to do that too. Finally, Paul offers a third example that will occupy the remainder of our text today. Example number three, he has the right to ministry compensation. Uh, Look with me at verse six. He asks this question. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Over the next several verses, Paul is actually going to lay out six different arguments showing that it is the right of a minister of the gospel to receive his livelihood through the ministry of the gospel. Six arguments. Uh, It's a bit overkill. This thought continues all the way through verse 14 where Paul says those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel what we're going to find is that Paul is just going to beat this into the ground. It almost starts to feel like after a while, it's like, Paul, are you kind of like beating a dead horse? And what he's doing, he's doing it on purpose. Paul is going to beat this right of his into the Corinthians' head and insist that it is his right, which is kind of what we tend to do with rights. We insist that they are ours. Only then to turn around and not make use of that right. He's trying to teach them something by way of example about how to manage their rights. Throughout church history, there have been some objections to ministers of the gospel being paid. Perhaps those objections were there in Corinth. I don't know. Uh, There may be some of you who object to it or at least question it or you just never thought about that. Is this a biblical concept? 
In this passage, it's interesting that the word that God uses is the word right. And interestingly, he places this right side by side to other rights that we would consider indisputable or unobjectionable rights. The right to eat and to drink. Who would question that? And the right to marry. Who would even think about questioning that? They're all in the same category. So how does Paul argue for this right? Well, he's going to make six arguments. Here's the first one. It's an argument from common sense custom. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Uh, It is customary to earn your livelihood through your work and be supported by it. In everyday life, people expect to be sustained by their labors. They're going to go out and work and those labors will sustain them. There are very few people showing up at their workplace in the morning pro bono. Paul illustrates this with three everyday occupations, the soldier, the planter, and the shepherd. Uh, Just like the soldier who doesn't risk his life and limb at his own expense, but is rather uh, outfitted and equipped and brought to the battlefield and trained and paid wages from the king's treasury. So Paul argues the minister of the gospel goes out daily to spiritual battle and out to spiritual warfare through the king's treasury. That's the point he's making. And just like the planter of a vineyard who goes out and does the backbreaking work of cultivating hard ground and uh, putting seed in the ground and watering that seed and then enjoys the fruit and profit of the vine, so Paul argues that the minister of the gospel plants and waters Uh, the seed of the gospel. He he might also plant and water churches and then he's compensated from that fruit. And just like the shepherd who leads his flock through green pastures and deserts and dark valleys and fends off roaring lions and other predators and then enjoys the milk and profit from the flock, so Paul argues that the minister of the gospel tends and leads the sheep through whatever comes And seeks to protect them from that roaring lion that we know from scripture is the devil himself. Who would have their souls and through those labors his own needs are provided. Paul says this is just, this is common, this is customary, this is how it works anywhere with everything. Paul is saying something to this effect. Which of you would go to work at an occupation and then have your employer say something like this to you. Thank you so much for pouring your heart and life into Your work here, we're so glad you're here. We love you. You're such a great employee. Thanks for all that you've done. Um, We want to keep you you working here, but we actually feel and think that our money could best be used elsewhere, so we're not going to pay you anymore. Well, that's not how it works anywhere. We would all laugh at that. If that was you, you'd be like, yeah, I'm not working here anymore. I got to go work somewhere else and make a living. For most of us at this point, We're probably convinced from argument number one. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I get it. But Paul is just going to keep hammering. Why? Because actually the argument that he's making isn't about uh, this, this arguing so much for this third right. He's arguing for it so that he can teach something bigger. Is material... Support, though, Paul is going to now ask for one's labor is just a human perspective or idea. He's going to argue, no, no, not at all. It's God's. Just take a look at the Old Testament law, and that's argument number two. It's an argument from Old Testament law. Look at verses 8 and 10. He asks, do I say these things on human authority? 
Is this just kind of what we do? He says, does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Uh, Paul's quotation there about the ox comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And in that section of Deuteronomy, the the larger section teaches on how to uh, care and have compassion for other people. And Paul argues, interestingly enough, that the law about the ox wasn't primarily written for the ox. But it was primarily written to teach us something about people and caring for people and treating people right. It's, It's not even about the ox, Paul says. In ancient agriculture, when a a grain crop was cut down, uh, all those sheaves or or whatever, the the stock of the crop, the whole thing, uh, the stalks of grain would be thrown onto a threshing floor. Typically, those threshing floors were located maybe uh, on the top of the hill where the wind would come ripping through and passing through. And the grain crop would be thrown on the ground, and then oxen would then be driven over the stalks of grain. And as the oxen walked over the grain, Uh, that process would separate the chaff from the kernel. And then uh, the workers would perhaps take their pitchforks, something like that. They would grab everything that had just been trampled. They would throw it up in the air, let the wind catch it, and all the light chaff would blow off over the edge of the hill, and the grain would fall to the ground where it could be gathered up. And the oxen were used in that process. Uh, Sometimes what the harvesters would also do is the oxen walked around, they would attach uh, a threshing sledge to the ox to pull behind him. Uh, it was a weighted, often wooden object, and sometimes even one of the workers would then sit on it, adding some weight so that this grain can be uh, crushed and separated. And all God is saying here is don't muzzle the ox while he works like that. Uh, that would be cruel. Rather, let him eat the grain as he works. Uh, so from this Old Testament verse and principle, Paul argues that a minister of the gospel has a right to material support. He has the right to earn his livelihood through the labors of gospel ministry. Well, if God would say this about care for an ox, how much more would would God care about that on the human side for the minister of the gospel? What's interesting is that the point of the the ox illustration, it seems simple enough, right? We read it, we go, okay, like, yeah, that seems pretty straightforward. But there may be more to it than meets the eye because Paul makes this statement. He goes, the Deuteronomy passage It's not about the ox. Well, I read Deuteronomy and I was pretty sure it was about the ox, right? (laughs) Like, what do you mean, Paul? And we're left asking the question, is is Paul doing some kind of gymnastics with the Old Testament text? Paul's arguing that that passage in Deuteronomy is not about an ox, it's about people. That's what that whole section of Deuteronomy was all about, caring for people and treating them rightly. So what on earth is Paul doing when he says it's not about the ox? Paul, it it sure looks like, if I'm just an everyday interpreter of Scripture, it looks like it's about the ox. Paul says, no, it's, it's about people. It's for us. And if we take Paul's words at face value that Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 is not about an ox, then we would have to ask, in what way is it about people? What way was that verse intended for people? In one interpretation, and I'm not saying that this is the interpretation, just an interpretation that I think is worth considering. One interpretation would be that the problem that Moses was addressing back in Deuteronomy with muzzling the ox 
wasn't ultimately that it was an injustice against the ox, but an injustice against the owner of the ox. An ox was valuable in the ancient world, right? I mean, if I live in the ancient world, I want to have an ox. It probably means I'm somewhat wealthy. I have a very, very powerful tool and instrument that's valuable. And so if I own the ox, I'm probably, because I value my ox, I'm probably going to take care of it. I'm probably going to feed my ox. I want it to stay healthy and strong because it's valuable. As the owner of the ox, I'm probably not the one muzzling it. I'm probably the one caring for it. It was worth much more than the grain that the ox would trample. But if you borrowed your neighbor's ox, for example, it's time for you to harvest your crop or whatever, and you don't have an ox, and so maybe you go to your neighbor and say, hey, could I borrow yours? And you get your ox there to the threshing floor. You might be tempted to muzzle it and work it to the bone. Why? Well, if you muzzle the ox, he's not going to eat any of your grain. He's just going to work. You're going to squeeze all your profits out of your harvest for yourself, and you're going to give your, your ox back to your neighbor, right? Now, sometimes we do that with tools. You borrow a tool, hopefully you take good care of it, or you could wreck the thing and give it back. That would be a temptation if you borrowed someone else's ox, and that would be a great injustice against your neighbor who owned the ox. If that line of interpretation is valid and in, in, in how they would have interpreted it uh, several years ago when the Jewish people read and, and were given the law, well, what, what might we infer from something like that? Well, we might infer that the ox or minister of the gospel is on loan to the church from the Lord. Who does the ox belong to? The people? No, the ox belongs to the Lord. The minister is God's ox, and he paid full price for the ox in blood. And so to return that ox to the Lord, having worked the ox to the bone and not properly cared for it, isn't ultimately a crime against the ox. It's a crime against the Lord. It's a sin against the ox's owner. And of course, all of these images cut in two different directions, don't they? On the one hand, God expects the ox or the minister of the gospel to work hard and to fulfill his purpose. And then on the other hand, God expects the church to care for the ox, supplying the needed provisions and rest required to keep on threshing. Look at how Paul concludes this illustration in verse 10. Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Uh, Paul now moves after that statement to a third argument, an argument from princi the principle of just reciprocation. Look at verse 11. He says, If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Very interesting question that he asks there. there. You'll notice as you look at that verse carefully that it breaks down into three different phrases. There are two if phrases hanging off of one main phrase. What's the main phrase? What's the main idea in verse 11? It's this phrase. Is it too much? Uh, it's a question of fairness, and it's written in such a way that it expects a negative answer. Is it too much? No. If a minister of the gospel sows spiritual seed, is it too much? Or we might say, is it unfair or is it unreasonable if he then reaps a material harvest? Paul says, no, absolutely not. That would be more than fair to use Paul's word. That's not just fair. Paul says it's actually a right. He moves on to a fourth argument. And this is an argument from precedent. Look at verse 12. He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? 
It, it wasn't just Paul who had the right to the Corinthians' support. Who else might Paul have been referring to? As he's obviously referring to some other people. Well, perhaps he was referring to men like Apollos and Peter and maybe others. You may recall at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, uh, the, the, some of the Corinthians were saying, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas or, or Peter. Over the years, the Corinthian church had been planted, watered, and ministered to by a few different men. And apparently, the Corinthian church had financially supported those other men. Men like Peter, men like Apollos, but not Paul. And though Paul had a right to that same support, he didn't take it. And again, especially the text we're going to get to next week, we're going to see Paul just saying, I don't want it. But he's arguing for it. Regardless, though, in the earliest days of the church, the precedent for providing for ministers of the gospel was set way back in our New Testaments. Uh, argument number five is an argument from the priesthood. I'm going to, for, for just a moment, skip over the second half of verse 12. We're going to come back to it. But look with me at verse 13. Argument number five, an argument from the priesthood. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Uh, You may recall that Old Testament Israel, it consisted of how many tribes? Twelve. And God had set apart one tribe in particular, the tribe of Levi, for the priesthood. The Levites served in the temple, and it was through that spiritual service that they gained their livelihood. So what did you have going on? If you go back and study your Old Testament, you had the other eleven tribes Uh, Doing what? Well, they're bringing their tithes and their offerings and their food offerings and their drink offerings and their sacrifices to the temple as gifts to the Lord. It's all a process of worshiping the Lord, Jehovah, their God, their covenant God. And through the worshipful giving of the 11 tribes, the 12th tribe, Levi, was sustained and provided for so they could continue ministry. They could continue in the priesthood. Just in case we weren't convinced, Paul clinches his point with one final argument. Argument number six, it's an argument from the instruction of Jesus. Look at verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. The Lord commanded. Who's that a reference to? It's a reference to Jesus. In his earthly ministry, Jesus taught what Paul has been arguing for. Uh, In Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said this. He said that the laborer deserves his wages. When Jesus sent his disciples out into the harvest field, and he, he did this a couple different times, he told them things like this. He said that they don't need to bring their own money back. He goes, you don't need to bring your own provisions. And then he told them that the people that you go minister to would provide for those needs. Some have argued that the right that Paul is arguing for is only the right of New Testament apostles um, or missionaries or traveling ministers and that it it wouldn't apply uh, to pastors or others or anybody else. And if that's you, uh, let me just give you a few things to chew on. Paul's first argument is an argument from custom. He's saying this is just how it works everywhere and in everything. His fourth argument mentions other unnamed men. We don't even know exactly who they were. His fifth argument is about men who stayed put, the Levites. 
And Paul's example of the right to take a wife, which, by the way, I, I broke that down into three separate rights, Paul, his right to eat and drink, his right to take a wife, and then the right to uh, basically be looked after financially. Many would view all three of those things as the exact same thing. So that uh, the right to eat and drink, that's the right to sustenance. The right to take along a believing wife is for Paul to be able to marry a woman and take her with him as he travels and serves and ministers and for her needs to also be met. That's a very, very common line of interpretation of this text. And what's interesting, Paul's example there of the right to take a wife mentions the brothers of Jesus. Who are those men? Well, they were men like Jude and they were men like James. James was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Stepping back, though, obviously Paul's making this point very clear. But what he's saying in the process of explaining these rights is basically that the gospel makes you free to exercise your rights. He's doing all this by way of example. He's reminding the Corinthians that they have rights. And the gospel makes you free to exercise your rights. That's the word he's using. And Paul just listed three of his, and he explained that he has every right to lay claim on them. He's arguing in such a way as to make it indisputable. And, And he's turning around to the Corinthians as if he's saying, you too have Christian rights, liberties, and freedoms that are yours in Christ to exercise. And I think he's inviting you and I to think about things like this. What are your Christian liberties? What are your Christian rights? What are you free to do in Christ? Along those lines, you may have legitimate liberties that other Christians are trying to tell you that you don't really have, but you know from Scripture that you actually do. For example, uh, Paul was saved out of Judaism. And when many of the Jewish people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, it was very hard for, for them to, to, to get the old Jewish way of life and thinking and, and, and living out of their heads. And so there's this constant propensity in the New Testament church for the Jewish Christians to say to the other Christians, you still need to be like a Jew. You still probably shouldn't eat pork or bacon or any of those things. When, when really all those Jewish Christians, they had that liberty to do that. And as you look about uh, your rights and liberties and, and different things in Christ, the, the gospel uh, has set you free and liberated you to do so many different things with a good conscience without guilt. You do have Christian liberties. And those Christian liberties should be acknowledged. We don't, we don't just go, oh yeah, I probably don't even have that one. Paul has been beating a dead horse so as to establish the indisputable right that a minister of the gospel has to material support and compensation. Why? Well, he needs to teach that to the Corinthians, but that's only secondary. He's doing it so that the Corinthians, is he doing it so that the Corinthians will pay him? No. In the next text, he's going to say, I don't even want it. He's doing all this to teach the Corinthians about managing their indisputable rights. And that takes us to his second lesson from Paul's example. The gospel should determine the exercise of your rights. That's what he wants to teach them. That's why he's been hammering this whole thing that he's just been hammering and beating this dead horse. He's establishing this right is indisputable. And then he turns around and models for them that the gospel should determine the exercise of their indisputable rights. 
As I mentioned, Paul has been absolutely hammering home that he has certain rights that he can lay claim to, but then he exclaims, I'm choosing not to exercise some of those. Why? Well, he's actually going to give us a few reasons, but today we just want to notice his first one. Why did Paul turn away from his rights? His first answer, the gospel. Look at verse 12 again. The second half of verse 12, he says, Nevertheless, even though we have this right, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. The right to be compensated, to be financially, materially supported in gospel ministry. We have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of what? The gospel of Christ. For whatever reason, Paul felt that in this particular case with the Corinthians, that taking material support from them would hinder the gospel. So he didn't make use of that right in Corinth. And I think a few observations are in order on that, just to make sure we're really clear on a couple things. Other men like Peter and Apollos did make use of that right in Corinth, and Paul didn't condemn it. In fact, he affirmed it. He says it's, it's a right. In no way, shape, or form does he say or imply that what those men did was less spiritual or that they shouldn't have done, done it. He hammered it home as a right. Another observation, Paul sometimes did make use of this right. For example, you remember that Paul writes the, to the Philippians. Why does he write to them? Because he wants to thank them for their financial support and gospel ministry and for partnering with him in that way. And you remember that the Philippians had sent uh, Epaphroditus to him. And and Epaphroditus ministered to him and supplied his needs and and, and gave the gifts that the the Philippians had had given. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul said to them that no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And then the verses to follow, Philippians 4, 15 and following, he goes on and on thanking them for what they had done. So you look at that big picture. In one instance, Paul exercised his, his right for the advance of the gospel, as would also be assumed of what Peter and Apollos did. And then in another instance, Paul didn't use his right to keep from hindering the gospel. And I think that's uh, really one of the things that God wants us to learn. Sometimes we exercise them, sometimes we don't. What's the deciding factor? The gospel. And another observation, make sure you get the paradigm that Paul's putting on the table right. Paul is not a paradigm that ministers should forfeit compensation. Paul is a paradigm that Christians should think about what best advances the gospel when exercising or not exercising their rights. Here's the point. You may have some indisputable rights. It's not just that you may have some indisputable rights. You do. And when it comes to whether or not you should use them, the question should be something like this. How can I best advance the gospel in this situation and avoid hindering it? And what Paul is modeling is that it's not about him. It's not about his indisputable rights that he just needs to lay claim to because they're his. No, he's saying, yep, they're mine. But the gospel determines whether or not I exercise them. It's not about me, Paul's arguing. It's about the gospel. 
And if you honestly wrestle with that, that question, how can I best advance the gospel in this situation and, and avoid hindering it? If you'll honestly wrestle with that question, if you'll just ask that question, do you know what you're going to do? You're going to manage your Christian liberties really, really well. You're going to manage those liberties, those rights and freedoms well because the gospel is driving your every decision. The gospel should determine the exercise of your rights. The big picture, what's Paul arguing for? He's saying, let the gospel inform your thinking on rights. The gospel tells you that you have certain rights. And the gospel helps you determine when and if to exercise them. And by God's grace, we want to be good stewards of these things called rights that we have. And exercising them looks different in different contexts. Sometimes we choose to exercise them. Sometimes we choose not to. Um, one person may exercise them in one situation, another person may not too, and all that's for the gospel. We're going to be people that let the gospel inform our thinking on everything we do. Would you bow your head with me and close your eyes?